Amen. Thanks, Adam. If you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 22. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Last week, we looked at what is the first Lord's Supper together with Jesus and the disciples. They gather in this upper room to take the Passover meal together. Jesus refashions that into what we call communion. But that's not the only thing that happens in that upper room. And so all of the gospel writers give us more of a picture of what takes place that night between Jesus and the disciples. And so we're going to look at the rest of what Luke records as happening that evening in that room with Jesus. We're going to start in verse 21 and work down to verse 38. So if you want to get yourself settled to there, uh, you can do that. I also, I just want to take a moment um, well, uh, to sort of acknowledge Welcome fathers, um, happy Father's Day to you. When I think about my dad, um, there are two things that come to mind. One is that when I was a senior, I, uh, I qualified to the sectional track meet. I was running multiple events and from sectionals, if you take in the top four, you go to state. And so I had a, a couple of relays and an individual event. It was the individual event I was really excited about, um, the 300 meter hurdles. Should have been a no-brainer that I was going to qualify on to state, but I actually false started that day. And uh, that meet was right around the time of graduation. So we had extended family in town. Everybody was able to go and watch that track meet, and then they were going to be able to see graduation. And one false start in high school, and you're disqualified. And so I false started. Uh, I walked onto the infield, and I was certainly disappointed about the you know, the competitive aspect of things. But more than that, I knew that I was going to have to walk back over to my family and just like face my extended family on what had just happened. And so it took me 10 or 15 minutes of sitting there on the infield to just like build up the courage necessary to walk over to the stands and have a conversation with my family. And so I finally walk over there, eyes splotchy. I had been crying. And before I could say anything, and really before I even got like all the way up into the stands, my dad looks at me and he says, we just really love to watch you run. And I thought, I didn't even start today. Like, I didn't make it out of the blocks. Um, but that image, even as, you know, an 18-year-old in high school, I just remember thinking how kind and gracious it was that my dad would remind me that they love me regardless of what could have happened on the track. Like, my success or my failure out there was not going to influence one bit for him how he felt about me, what he thought about me, and just how kind it was that before I started needing to like stammer out an explanation for what had just happened, he just went ahead and affirmed the fact that he loves me. The other thing I think of is on Sunday mornings, my parents attend second service. They sit in this section right along this aisle. And most Sundays when the service ends and everybody's kind of headed off to the next thing or... Um, going to pick up their kids from Kids Point or whatever the case might be, my dad is always walking toward me. So everybody else is sort of moving like out of the sanctuary and my dad stands up and he always walks, he walks toward me. Um, sometimes just to say hi, sometimes to comment on the sermon, sometimes to poke fun at what I'm wearing. But like he's always just moving like toward me at the end of service. And I say all of that to say this, um, my, my parents, my dad, he wasn't perfect. Um, but he pointed me very well when I think back. Like I can look through my dad and see that a heavenly father who is perfect. 
and who loves me with a steady, unchanging kind of love that is not based on what I could give to him or what I could provide to him or how I could serve him. It, it is always moving toward me. And dads here this morning, like you're not gonna be perfect. There are gonna be times where you wish you would have said a better thing or you, know, you wish the instruction or the parenting would have been better. You wish maybe you wouldn't have been as harsh or whatever the case might be. But big picture, take heart. Like the goal is to just point your children to a heavenly father who is perfect. And if at the end of the day, you can think, did it well or didn't do it well, modeled it perfectly or didn't model it perfectly, I'm just a signpost to a heavenly father. Like that's, that, that's the goal. And when your children are adults, they're gonna look back and they're gonna remember the fact that you weren't perfect. That's okay. The goal is that they would be able to see through you to a father who is. Like, like that's the aim. And the gift that it is to your children to get to provide that as you fumble your way through it, all the ups and downs of parenting, all the difficult seasons and, and hard stretches and everything that comes with it. The only real goal is to be a signpost to a perfect heavenly father. That's it. That's the aim. I hope this morning, as we look at this passage, we're gonna get an image of the steadiness and the unchanging nature of who Jesus is. The scripture tells us that what we see in Jesus is the exact expression of the father. And so my hope is, uh, dads, you take encouragement of the image of Jesus here. That's the image of the perfect heavenly father. Those of you who maybe had experiences with an earthly father that weren't so wonderful, that maybe are more painful than they were um, positive in your recollection. I hope too that you can take some encouragement this morning. You can look through your father and see a perfect heavenly father and we're gonna get an image of that this morning. And so um, dads, thank you for what it is that you do in the life of the children of this church. Uh, it's a serious calling. It's one that I hope one day to be blessed with. Um, the position that you're in is one that I long for. I'd love to take a moment to pray for you and then we'll jump into this passage in Luke. God, thank you for who you are. Your unchanging, unfailing, perfectly steady nature. God, thank you for the way that you love us. God, we thank you for the fathers in this congregation. I pray that you would strengthen them, that you would empower them. God, I pray that you would extend grace and mercy and patience to them. God, I pray that you would ever remind them to lean into you in their fathering. God, I pray that as they wrestle with what it looks like to be a parent and a, a father at different stages in their children's lives, God, that they would ever and always have in their hearts this perfect fatherhood that you give to us. God, I pray when they miss the mark, God, that they would be reminded that there's grace for that. God, I pray that for all of us, 
whether we had fathers who in general, when we look back, faithfully pointed us to you, or we have fathers who, when we look back, maybe don't do that quite so much, God. But I pray that by your grace, we would be able to see through our earthly fathers to our heavenly father, and that we would rejoice in the perfection of who you are. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Really quickly before we read this, I want to I want to point out two theological doctrines that are going to be important while we look at this passage. The first one is what theologians call the immutability of God. That is the big fancy word that theologians give to the doctrine that God does not change. He is unchanging in his being and in his character. Who God is is who God always has been and who God always will be. The second doctrine is what theologians call the doctrine of impassibility. That simply means that God is not subject to the whims of passion. That his feelings are not what control him. That the external uh, created order or the circumstances that play out do not inflame his passions into such a way that he is then controlled by those passions. He, He does not undergo successive or fluctuating emotional states. That's the doctrine of God's impassibility. Now, those two things stand in contrast to who we are as humans. We are ever-changing. Who we are is often dictated by the moment, the circumstances, or the season. We grow and we change as individuals. Sanctification is the word we use to talk about, the change that happens in a follower of Jesus that shapes them into the image of Christ and makes them less prone to their own flesh. And we're never going to get to that place perfectly, But we change, we grow. We're also emotionally unpredictable. We're subject to our passions. In response to the ever-shifting circumstances created in the world around us, we often have our emotions inflamed and then we react according to those emotions. We can be steady, but we can also be wildly inconsistent and unpredictable. Let me put all of that, kind of tie all of that together. When we say God is loving, we're actually coming up short in describing who God is. God is loving love. My parents are loving. My dad is loving. But I'm fairly certain that at different seasons in my life, be they long or short, my dad loved me but didn't like me particularly for chunks of time. He's human, subject to the ebbs and flows that take place over the course of a life. He's subject to his own passions and feelings. When we say that God is loving, what we need to say is that God is love. That cannot change. It does not ever flow. His love for his people does not rise and fall based on his passions or based on a certain period in time or the circumstances that are playing out. So whereas my parents, my dad was steady in his love, God is unchanging, unfailing, unswayed in the fact that he is love. You can do that with any one of God's characteristics. And all of that matters in the introduction here because we're going to see these two things contrast and clash head on. A God who is immutable and impassable, unchanging and not subject to his passions, and humanity who is fickle and unpredictable. The landing point this morning is that the heart of Jesus is steady and unchanging in response to the human heart's unpredictability. So if you have Luke 22 open in front of you, we're working with verses 21 down to 38, but I'm gonna back up to verse 19 and give us sort of a rolling start into what happens here in the upper room after the institution of the Lord's Supper. It says this, 
Luke 22, starting in verse 19. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the son of man will go away as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. He also said to them, When I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, but now whoever has money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. That is enough. He told them, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that by the power and the presence of your spirit here among us, you would take the truth of your word, illuminate the beauty of your son and mold us into his image. God, would you open our eyes, our hearts and our minds that we might see the truth of your word Worship the wonder of Christ and walk faithfully in relationship with you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna walk through this two times. The first time, just focused on the apostles and what's happening with them. Then we're gonna circle back around and we'll go through it a second time and we'll just look at Jesus. Start with me in verse 21. Jesus points out, that someone is going to betray him. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the son of man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they, that's the disciples, began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Now we saw the setup to this a few weeks ago. If you jump back up to verse three in chapter 22, we're told Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. 
Judas has been one of Jesus's closest friends and ministry partners for the last three years. And like all the disciples, he's been awed by Jesus's ministry, his miracles, and his teaching. And all in one moment, it appears, Judas flips from being friend to betrayer. And that moment is so confounding. And the fact that Jesus would name that someone was going to do that is so confounding to the rest of the group of the disciples that the first of two arguments around this dinner table breaks out. Three years ago, when their ministry with Jesus began, could any of them have predicted that this would be where things were headed, that one in their number would betray Jesus? Absolutely not. Three years ago, when their ministry with Jesus began, could Judas have predicted that this is where things would end up, that for a bag of silver, he would betray Jesus, the Son of God? Absolutely not. But such is the unpredictable nature of the human heart, subject to spiritual betrayal. Look at verse 24. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. When I read this, the first question that pops into my mind is how much time passed between these two arguments? No one really knows. It's conceivable that they went from one right into the other, which makes perfect sense. Someone's going to betray Jesus. They start, I would never do that. I would never do that. Well, I wouldn't do it because I'm the greatest of everybody here, clearly, right, Jesus? No, you're not the greatest. I'm the greatest, right, Jesus? It has to be me. I would never betray you. I couldn't do that. But the Gospel of John also records that there's an entire sort of upper room discourse, that's what theologians call it, that takes place around this table. You can find that in the Gospel of John chapters 14, 15, and 16. The arguments could have been spread out over time as Jesus was offering them some final teaching. Someone's going to betray me, argument about who it is. There's some beautiful teaching that takes place around this table in the upper room that John records. And then sometime along there, an argument sparks about who's the greatest. Whatever the timeline looked like, at some point, a fairly petty argument breaks out there around the table. Bear in mind what the disciples have heard Jesus teach about humility. They were present when he gave the Beatitudes. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. They heard Jesus say, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. They've heard Jesus describe those who will receive the kingdom of God as children, and children were thought very lowly of at this time. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And all of that doesn't include the fact that they've just watched Jesus get a bowl and a towel get down on his knees and wash their feet. And now here they are squabbling over who is greatest. They have hearts that despite all that they've heard Jesus say and all that they've seen Jesus model about humility being the path to greatness in his kingdom, they have hearts that want to be exalted, honored, recognized. Such is the unpredictable nature of the human heart subject to moments of self-promotion. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when, or, and you, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today 
until you deny three times that you know me. We've all at various times and in various ways written a check with our mouth that we absolutely were not ready to cash with our actions. Peter does this on the grandest of scales here. I would go to prison and to death with you, Jesus. That's the proclamation. When in actuality, he will do the exact opposite, which is to avoid prison and avoid death at all costs. How will he do that? Well, he'll do that by doing precisely what Jesus said he would do. Deny three times that he knows who Jesus is. Peter is a bit delusional in the moment. Is he well-intentioned? I think so. But is he prone to thinking far more about his spiritual state and maturity than is actually true? I think so. And such is the nature of the unpredictable human heart. Last, starting in verse 35, he also said to them, when I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, but now whoever has a money bag should take it and also a traveling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. That is enough, he told them. Jesus asks whether or not they've ever lacked anything when he sent them out to do ministry. That's a reference back to when in the Gospel of Luke he sends the 72 out in pairs to do ministry and he tells them, you don't need to take anything other than the clothing that you're wearing. He says, did you lack anything when I sent you out? And they say, of course not. And so we'll focus when we work back through this on what Jesus is doing here, but he's, he, he goes on to prepare them for what's about to happen. And he mentions selling their cloaks to get a sword. I want to give a quick word here. Throughout Christian history, this very short little interaction has been used by followers of Jesus to support like a calling to arms and a, and a defending in a physical sense of themselves and of the faith. My response to that would be that that's an inappropriate use of this verse. Now, admittedly, this is a strange moment from Jesus. There's some mystery that surrounds what he's saying here because he offers no explanation and Luke does not provide any commentary. So what's going on here? How is it that I would say that using this as sort of like a Christian call to arms would be an inappropriate way to approach or apply this verse? One trustworthy and helpful Bible study tactic that you can use is to allow clearer parts of scripture to interpret less clear parts of scripture. So you read something that seems a little bit confusing and you say to yourself, is there anywhere else in the Bible that talks about this general topic with maybe some more clarity? You actually don't have to think very far forward to get some clarity on this from Jesus. What's going to happen when he's arrested in the garden? Well, one of the disciples is going to grab one of the two swords and as the captors come to get Jesus. He's going to cut off a man's ear. And what does Jesus do? Rebukes the disciples, heals the ear. Okay, so clearly this can't be Jesus saying we're supposed to like get, you know, weapons and sort of like lead some kind of bloody revolt. The disciples would have gotten that picture clearly in the garden. If you think forward about the apostles in the book of Acts, they're beaten, jailed even killed, and never once do they use the couple of swords here or leverage weapons in order to fight 
those who are persecuting them. Think forward into the New Testament. The New Testament, Paul says, the kingdom of God is not one of power, but of weakness. We think about the early church. They endured intense persecution by the Roman government. They never took up arms in the face of even their own death. We should also always be careful not to make a descriptive part of scripture into a prescriptive part of scripture, which is to say we shouldn't take something like a narrative account and then leverage that into, well, this is Jesus making this statement for all believers for all time. The gospel of Luke here is recording the account of Jesus's last days. Jesus is warning the disciples that everything that he's been saying about his arrest and death is about to happen. And once it does, things will be different in ministry going forward for the disciples than they were in the past. The disciples get anxious. They look around and they say, yeah, we have two swords. And Jesus says, that's enough, exclamation point. You don't need to sell your cloak and get more physical weapons in order to carry out this kingdom activity that I'm calling you into. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. It's a limiting of the weapons of this world and a subtle reminder that what the disciples need are not physical tools, but spiritual readiness for the life and the ministry that lay ahead. Understandably, despite the constant care of Jesus, on the precipice of him being arrested and killed, they're anxious, spiritually anxious. And such is the unpredictable nature of the human heart. What would be easy in this passage is to look at the disciples and say, well, I'm none of those things. I don't have this heart of betrayal. I'm not seeking self-promotion. I'm not spiritually delusional. I don't have this kind of spiritual anxiety to which I would say, well, let's pause and take a step back. The truth is that our hearts are every bit as unpredictable as the disciples. The human heart is unpredictably prone to spiritual betrayal. We tend to see this most in moments of suffering or trial. It's not to say that our pain isn't real or that the natural questions that suffering produces within the life of a believer are bad, but it is to say that we can become very prone in our moments of pain or grief or trial to turn our back on God. In fact, in the parable of the soils, one of the soils, Jesus says, the seed goes into it, it springs up quickly, but then it's choked out by the worries and the cares of life. That's this kind of spiritual betrayal. That in our moments of pain and the worries of life and the difficulty that comes along, we start to have something that gnaws in the back of our heart, in the back of our minds or deep in our hearts that says, well, maybe God never loved me anyway. Maybe he isn't who he said he would be. And if he never loved me anyway and he's not who he said he would be, I'm out. The human heart is unpredictably prone to spiritual promotion. We tend to see this most clearly in moments of service or sacrifice. Look, we can make any small act of service reason for God to reward us. I did a quiet time today, God. Why is there traffic on the way to work? You owe me something better. I set up the tables faithfully at this church event once a month or once a year. How come you haven't given me the things that I've been praying for? You owe me, God. See how great I am. You should give me stuff in response to my greatness. The human heart is unpredictably prone to spiritual delusion. 
We tend to see this most clearly in moments of temptation. We all have sort of a dim sense of our own ability to resist temptation. We know the things that we're prone to sin toward. I'm just going to use one as an example. It's prevalent and ready one within the life of the modern church, and that's the issue of pornography. Whether it be images on a computer, something on your smartphone, particular websites, or even certain shows on a streaming service that we know send us down a path toward engagement with pornography, we are just ever naive enough to believe that next time I'll be fine. Rather than saying, you know what, I need to get uh, no more smartphone, no more internet on my cell phone. That's the problem. I need to eliminate that. We need to just not have the internet at home or whatever the case might be. We're just spiritually delusional enough to think I can resist it next time. I'll be totally fine next time. You know, we read scripture that says that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. When we are tempted, he'll provide a way out so that we can stand up under it. And then we get into our common places of temptation around our common sins and we stumble to those and we think, well, what happened? God was supposed to provide a way out. Well, did you think a helicopter was gonna show up and lift you up out of the situation or something like that? You've probably had numerous opportunities to remove yourself from that particular temptation, but the reality is we're just spiritually delusional enough to believe, well, next time I'll be fine. I would never, Jesus, he says, actually you would three times before the rooster crows. The human heart is unpredictably prone to spiritual anxiety. We tend to see this most in relation to what I will call what we believe are promises from scripture. Some blessing of salvation that we see on the pages of scripture and we look around our life and we think, well, how come that thing's not coming to fruition for me right now or as quickly as I would like it to? And we think maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe he's not giving me the things that he promised that he would give me. Is there something that I might need from him and he's unwilling to share it? Look, maybe the most predictable thing about the human heart is its unpredictability. The only thing we can reliably bank on about our own hearts is that we don't actually have a clue of what it is that we can bank on when it comes to our own hearts. They're ever-shifting, ever-changing. But the heart of Jesus is steady and unchanging in response to the human heart's unpredictability. So let's walk back through this because the way Jesus responds to all of these things is really beautiful. Verse 21. Look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. The steady heart of Jesus is unchangeably resolute. He is eternally committed to the fulfillment of all God's plans, purposes, and promises. That's as true today as it was when Jesus was on the earth. It was true before he came to the earth. It's as true today as he sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on behalf of his people as it was in eternity past. Jesus was resolute in the fulfillment of his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. He is resolute in the fulfillment of his kingdom's future consummation. He is resolute in the fulfillment of his promise to draw together every last one of his people. He is resolute in the fulfillment of bringing all the blessings of salvation and the kingdom to each and every one of his people. 
Our changing and unpredictable nature does not deter him in the least. The brokenness of this world does not cause him to change or to shift. The seeming slowness with which his promises are brought into their fullness in our world and in our lives is not a sign of his wavering or his uncertainty. They're aspects of his grace that we are yet to fully understand. He is steady and unchanging in his resolute nature. He will fulfill every last promise. You can bank on it. It will never change. Verses 24 to 30, this dispute over greatness. Watch what happens in the middle of this. A dispute arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. Now Jesus is going to start to remind them of what greatness is in his kingdom. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one who serves? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now watch this. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The steady heart of Jesus is unchangeably tender. Do you see what happened in the middle of that? They're arguing about who will be greatest. He reminds them that humility is the path to greatness in his kingdom. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, he starts complimenting them. They're bickering over who's gonna sit at his right hand in the kingdom of heaven, and he says... I'm gonna give you a kingdom just like my father gave to me. He's literally just said someone is going to betray him and he's just about to give Peter a warning that he's going to deny him. And Jesus says, you're the ones who stood by me in my trials. Like it almost doesn't make sense. Who's gonna be at your right hand, Jesus? When my kingdom comes, you're all gonna sit on thrones with me. It's unthinkably tender. He could have just rebuked them Reminded them that humility is a path to greatness again, pointed out that they're knuckleheads and then just moved along. But instead, he was who he always is, which is gentle and tender with his people. Jesus in this moment is a living picture of the father and the prodigal son. Remember that. With the older brother, the father in the parable goes outside the party tells the older brother that everything he has always has been and always will be the son's. And then he gently invites that son to come back in to the party. Here are the disciples having a petty argument over who is going to be greatest. And Jesus gives them a gentle reminder of what greatness is in his kingdom. And then he just starts lavishing promises upon them. You will sit at my table. You will eat and drink with me in the kingdom. I will bestow upon you a kingdom just like my father has bestowed upon me. You will sit on thrones when I come in power. It's just unbelievably tender. Not, hey, figure it out. Instead, it's, you're the ones who have stood by me in my trials. You will reign with me when the kingdom comes. Just as that is true for Jesus with the disciples in this particular moment, it's true today for us. Jesus is tender, gentle with his people. Always. Verses 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. A quick note here on Satan sifting you like wheat. Jesus tells Simon Peter that Satan has asked God to sift like wheat. And the word you there in the Greek is actually plural. That's almost impossible to see in the English. But Jesus is saying Satan has asked to sift you all, the disciples, like wheat. What does that sifting mean? Well, this kind of textbook answer would be that Satan wants to know who he can shake loose from following Jesus. Whose faith, like the parable of the soils, is the genuine fruitful soil and who are the other three? I want to sift you like that. The, the image here calls to mind the beginning of the book of Job where Satan goes into the presence of God and says, how about that guy? You've only ever been good to him, but if you took away everything he has, maybe he wouldn't be as faith-filled and obedient as you think he is. Maybe the best illustration I can come up with is, you know, those toys that you get for a toddler where there's like a piece of uh, wood across the top with some cut out. There's like a star and a square and a circle and a half moon. And then there are the toys that fit little blocks that fit inside each one of those. And you watch your toddler repeatedly try to put the star into the square hole and just over and over until one day it falls through and like, like a light bulb comes on. It's as though Satan were to want to take all of those little blocks, put them on the top of that thing and start shaking it to see when and if one would fall through. He wants to do that with the disciples. Who can we shake loose here? But the steady heart of Jesus is unchangeably sure. Look what he says. I have prayed for you, again, that's plural, that your faith may not fail. And you, now that's singular, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is sure. He knows your faith will not fail. Peter is going to end up denying Jesus. Yes, he's sure about that too. But he knows that he won't fall away. The disciples will flee in Jesus' moment of need. But he knows that they won't fall away. He is steady and unchanging in his surety. How? because he's interceding for them. The same role he plays on behalf of believers as he sits at the right hand of the Father right now. Who will ultimately hold them against the sifting attempts of Satan? Jesus will. And the same is true for us. We will be held in the Lord's hands, not because of our ability to hold on to him, but because of his ability to hold on to us. And then we See what he does with Peter there. It isn't on the beach after the resurrection that Jesus begins commissioning Peter into ministry. That moment where he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, then feed my sheep. He starts that here. And you, Peter, when you have not fallen away, strengthen your brothers. Part of the way the Lord strengthens us is through the body of Christ providing encouragement and strength to one another. John Piper says that eternal security is a community project. That's a gift that God gives us in the life of the church. Fathers, there's a moment that I love when we do baptisms here and we will uh, sometimes have a child who says they want their father to baptize them. There's a beautiful moment where that takes place where a father is baptizing their son or their daughter and 
into being brother or sister in Christ. Like this, this is like wonderfully beautiful moment where dad is looking at son or daughter and baptizes them. And now son and daughter, yes, but also brother or sister in Christ. And one day dads, your kids will grow up and by God's grace, they'll move on out into the world and into normal life. Parents, you might be in the season where you're saying, when does that day come? But when, when that day happens, your child steps out into adult life, they're still brother or sister in Christ. They're still child as well. But your role in their life to strengthen them as you are strengthened by God, as you're held in the palm of Jesus and he intercedes for you that you would strengthen your child who is your brother or sister. What a beautiful gift that is from God for you to get to do that. Part of the way that the Lord holds us and reminds us that we are held is that we're strengthened by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is so sure of all of this with Jesus that he says, when you have not failed in your faith, strengthen your brothers and sisters. Last verses 35 to 38. He also said to them, when I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then at the end in verse 38, Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. That is enough he told them. The steady heart of Jesus is unchangeably wise. Jesus knows exactly what his people, the disciples, will need in the days ahead, in the days ahead, and he takes a moment to prepare them. He's provided for them in the past. He will continue to do so in the future. In fact, in that upper room discourse in John 14, 15, 16, Jesus promises to send his Holy Spirit to fulfill that act of providing. So often we think we know what we need and then we dictate those things to God. But the unpredictable nature of our hearts means that we typically don't have a clue what we need. What we can rest in and lean into is that God does and that Jesus has promised that like a good father, God will not give us stones when we ask for bread or snakes when we ask for fish. The problem is that so often we're asking for stones and snakes and he's trying to give us bread and fish and we think the problem is with him and not with us. We don't see it the way he sees it. And we have a hard time accepting that maybe it is our heart leading us astray, not the wisdom of God letting us down. The steady heart of Jesus is unchangeably wise. He knows what we need, when we need it, better than we do. And we can trust that what he is giving us is that which we need. The heart of Jesus is steady and unchanging in response to the human heart's unpredictability. If you're passing out communion, will you come grab these trays and start to distribute them? When the tray goes by, there are two cups stacked on top of each other. There's juice in the top cup, a wafer underneath. You can just grab a little two stack there. If you need gluten-free wafer, those are in the center. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, received God's grace for your salvation, we invite you to take communion alongside us. And as we do this, I wanna direct our hearts in a specific direction. Last week, when we started looking at this passage in the upper room, we were reminded that communion calls forth God's faithfulness to his people in the past, his work on his people's behalf in the present there with Jesus, and also the future, that one day we will dine at this marriage feast of the Lamb. This morning as we take communion, I want to call your attention to a specific place. Communion reminds us of the steady, unchanging 
resolute, tender, sure, and wise heart of Jesus. When you hold the body of Christ in your hands, the blood of Christ there in your hands, we're to be reminded that the Jesus there that died on the cross, he is eternally unchanging. When we see him in glory, he will be exactly who he was when he was here on the earth. And when he was here on the earth, he was exactly who he was before he made his entrance into the world. He does not change past, present, future. We also get the reminder of our often unpredictable wayward hearts and the need for Christ to do what he did on the cross on our behalf because there was lacking inside of us the perfection necessary to bring us into right relationship with the Lord. So we hold those elements in our hands, body of Christ, blood of Christ, poured out for us, his steady, unchanging, resolute, tender, sure, wise love poured out for his people there on the cross. Despite the fact that we are unpredictable and fickle, oftentimes spiritually betraying, oftentimes spiritually self-promoting, oftentimes spiritually delusional, oftentimes spiritually anxious, Jesus in his steady and unchanging way goes to the cross on our behalf. And it is the nature of Christ that he did so willingly. And so we take communion this morning and we remember that. I don't have a little cup. I forgot to grab one. Can I have one? Thanks. If you've got those elements in front of you, brothers and sisters, on the night that he was arrested, Jesus took some bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. And after they had eaten, he took a cup and he passed it around the table and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Drink in remembrance. The heart of Jesus is steady and unchanging. And it is steady and unchanging in response to the human heart's unpredictability. Amen? That is good news. We're going we're gonna to stand if you want to join. We're going to worship. We're going to sing the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Some beautiful reminders of this unchanging nature of Jesus that holds us and will hold us. For my faith, he bled and died. He will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Let's sing. Good morning. My name is Jay West, and I'm on the leadership team. And earlier this week, we sent out an email announcing a new executive pastor role. And that video talked about the what and the why. So if you have questions about that, go back and watch the video, and you can reach out to someone on the leadership team. But my pleasure this morning, I get to introduce the who. So Carrie Broyles has accepted the executive pastor role. Come on up here, Carrie. Carrie's a first service guy like us in here, so we're, we're glad to have him here. So, Carrie, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I hailed from Indiana and um, uh, joined the Marine Corps right out of high school, spent six years. Oorah. And uh, for those of you who don't understand, talk to him afterwards. Um, 
And then um, went to college and got a teaching degree and taught for six years at Liberty Junior High, uh, which is near the square, and then uh, became an administrator. Went to Fort Osage for a few years and then came back, and Scott Carr was nice enough to hire me and uh, was an assistant principal at Liberty Junior High and Heritage Middle School for the next um, oh, 16 years. So been there a long time. and. Um, and have always lived in Liberty once I got out of the service and went to college. And um, uh, LCF has a very dear place to my heart. Uh, my wife and I started attending here about five years ago. And, uh, but prior to that, back up at the young age of 30, um, uh, a group of uh, men that I taught with invited me to a Bible study at Hy-Vee, um, which is now Feldsman. And um, four of those people attend this church, uh, Roger Sturtz, Scott Carr, uh, Dennis Blocklinger, and um, my very dear friend, Tim Nixon, and they led me to Christ. So um, super excited to be in a different role and um, to help uh, build devoted followers of Christ. And I thank those men and so many others that poured into me, and hopefully I can do the same. All right, great. Thank you, Carrie. I got a few rapid-fire questions. We do this with all the interns, so <laughs> so we'll just go rapid-fire, okay? Who's your favorite author? Uh, Tom Clancy. What's your favorite hobby pastime? Uh, love doing uh, home improvement projects. Favorite book of the Bible? Um, I would have to go with First John. Okay, now this last one's a little, it's very divisive times here. We have a lot of division over this issue, so uh, Michael Jordan or LeBron James or, or Steph Curry? Uh, obviously, Michael Jordan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you, Kerry. Kerry starts on August 1st. Actually, cancel that. Larry Bird. Kerry <laughs> <laughs> starts on August 1st. That's all we have. Happy Father's Day. Go in grace and peace. Thank you.